Um, thank you. How about I pray for us as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come near to us in the person of Jesus. Thank you that you desire relationship with us and that you've made everything that's necessary for that to be possible. Um, Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Um, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, illuminating to us who you are and who we are in light of who you are. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we look out on the human population, both now and in history, there's a huge amount of diversity in the physical and intellectual abilities that we observe. The question is, how do we make sense of that? And how has the Christian faith made sense of that throughout history? Is disability and impairment a tragic result of the fall? A byproduct of the shattering of the universe by sin? Is it therefore always a problem to be fixed, a malady to be remedied, a deficiency to be cured? Or is it just another expression of human diversity? Just examples of different ways of being in the world. How does where we land on that question affect our expectation of resurrection bodies? Will disability be in heaven? And what does that mean for the people who have a disability and whose identity is really bound up with their experience of the world as a person with a disability? Now, those are all very big questions, particularly for before 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. But they're important, aren't they? And often, I don't think we've really spent much time thinking about them. We're not going to comprehensively resolve those questions this morning, but my hope is that by the end of this next hour or so, we will all be better equipped to not only think well about disability, but to do life in community with people who are different to us. Particularly to shift our thinking from us serving them to each of us giving and receiving in mutual co-flourishing, to serving with, alongside, to be the body of Christ that we're called to be. I'm going to begin our time together by sharing with you three stories. These are all true stories um, from people that I know. The first is about the brother-in-law of my friend, Louise. Louise is a friend in Sydney. Uh, John is a brother-in-law, and he has Down syndrome. Uh, he'd been enthusiastically serving at his local Anglican church for several years. He was a person welcoming at the door, handing out bulletins, even like carrying the candle down for liturgy. It was that kind of Anglican church. One day, uh, when John was in his late teens, this was several years ago now, a new minister started at the church. The new minister called John's mum and said, Hi, Karen. Unfortunately, John isn't able to serve anymore in the way that he has been serving. According to this new minister, people with an intellectual disability aren't able to understand the gospel, and therefore it's inappropriate for them to serve. What do you think of that? The second story is about an acquaintance of one of my mentors, Brian. Brian's in Scotland. Um, and this woman is deaf, uh, but 
Earlier last year, she was diagnosed with cancer, and earlier this year, she went to a healing service and went to the front for prayer for her cancer. Without asking her what she wanted prayer for, the minister clapped his hands around her ears and started praying loudly for the demonic powers that kept her hearing from her to be banished from her to free her from her oppression. How do you reckon she felt walking away from that service? The third is about a woman I know called Amy. Amy is originally Australian, but she now lives in the States. She's lame and gets around in a wheelchair. She asked at a church for a ramp to be built because she's in a wheelchair and she couldn't get into the service. I noticed that you've got these wonderful ramps which really importantly, signal things to people with a disability. She was told that it wasn't a good use of church's money because it would only benefit her and there was no one else with a disability at the church. So she'd have to keep on getting into the building to worship through the back door with the bins and rats and photocopying machines. Now, each of those stories is revelatory. And by that, I mean that they reveal important things about the beliefs and values that sit below the surface of the way we live and speak and act in the world. Beliefs about what it is to be human, what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, and what it is to belong in community with others. These kinds of beliefs reflected in those stories are not uncommon, but they are, in my view, largely unthought through. So John's story being kicked off the serving roster reveals that many of us unconsciously place cognitive ability at the heart of what it is to be human, and more, more than that, at the heart of what it is to be a disciple. If you can confess the creed and cognitively grasp what that means, then you're a disciple. According to this view, you could be standing at the top of a staircase and be a Christian, Take a tumble down the stairs, hit your head, and at the bottom, no longer be a disciple. Wow. Can the image of God be so easily taken away? The story of the deaf woman reveals that far too often we fail to pay attention to the people we encounter in our day-to-day lives, at the general level, not just people with a disability. We make assumptions, and rather than being with them, just paying attention to them, we project onto them our own fears and anxieties and expectations. So we assume that being deaf would be the worst thing in the world, so obviously she wants to not be deaf, rather than paying attention to her needs. And this kind of ambush praying is something that a lot of people with disability um, experience. And, you know, it, it fails to honour the agency of people with a disability, assuming that they're merely objects of pity or compassion instead of sites of encounter where God is already at work. There's much to be learned from the example of Jesus when he encountered the blind man Bartimaeus. Do you remember what he says? What do you need? What do you need? pays attention to him and honours his agency. And finally, the story of Amy's refused wheelchair ramp reveals that far too often, and 
I know that in my involvement in churches, this has been, I'm being guilty of this, far too often the organising principles of our communities are things like efficiency, productivity, cost-effectiveness, a tight run sheet, rather than mutual belonging and self-giving love. And those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but we need to make sure that we're creating space for people to show up in the ways that God has geared them to do so. All too often, one of the big themes in my thinking about this kind of stuff has been that we fail to see people with disability as bearers not only of the divine image, they're image bearers of God, but they're bearers of gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit of God for the mutual building up of our communities. When we instead see them as burdens or drains in our resources, we forego the opportunity to receive from them the gifts they have on offer. We can't be the full body of Christ without the whole body of Christ. Disability isn't a fringe issue. It's not just um, something that's the concern of a minority. It affects every single one of us, individually and collectively. That's not just because the odds of, well, the odds of all of us at one point um, obtaining an, an impairment, whether that be sensory or physical or cognitive, over the course of our life, but also because the reality of impairment and disability, I think, is a crucible that tests the convictions that lie at the core of what it is to be human. If it doesn't hold for people with disability, then it doesn't stand. So today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Don't worry about tracking fully with everything. Just let it wash over you, and if things stick, they stick. You can follow it up with other resources later. The point is to give you a lay of the land, to see how God can expand your vision of humanity and of his community in the people of God. Uh, so we're going to start by sketching out what disability can teach us about what it is to be human. And then from there, we're going to turn to what we can learn from the lived experience of people with, with a disability for what it is to be the church and how we can more fully be the communities that we've been called to be. So the second half is going to be much more practical um, than the first. First is a little bit philosophical, um, but I, I ask for your forgiveness on that front. It's very interesting. I've got no doubt that many of you have already started this journey. Um, some of you will be well on your way, I'm sure. My own journey with an acquired physical disability started when I was 15. I was playing a lot of music, a lot of sport, and then suddenly my hand went on strike. And I went from playing in orchestras to being unable to hold a pencil, to being in the top team of every sport I played, to being unable to throw a ball. Uh, I baffled all the top neurologists around the world. No one knew how to account for what had gone wrong in my brain. I exhausted every avenue of medical testing. And 18 years on, I experienced constant muscle seizures in my right side. And associated with that bunch of central nervous system stuff and chronic pain. So it's important for me to say that, yes, obviously this experience has kind of catalyzed my interest in this stuff. But that, I don't think that that really gives me standing to speak on this topic. And the reason for that is, Gosh, disability is so different 
No one person's experience can account for the experience of everyone else. Um, and you can't speak for all of it. Um, to illustrate some of the kind of the key differences in the landscape we're talking about, people with a physical disability have a very different experience of the world to those with cognitive impairments. So physical disability, kind of generally in the policy and law, they're the ones who are shaping most of the advocacy here and in the States and elsewhere, because they can still advocate in ways that are recognisable in our kind of common life. Those who are non-verbal, well, how do they engage with the power brokers of society? Another difference, so there's physical and cognitive. Another difference is, for example, those who have acquired an impairment later in life, that's very, they experience their disability, they tend to experience their disability very differently to those who were born with a congenital condition. Um, the latter category tend to have their identity so bound up with their condition they couldn't imagine who they would be without it. And that correspondingly shapes how they think of new creation and resurrection hope. And finally, one of the big ticket items is those with an experience of impairment that is bound up with pain have, well, they feel less neutral about their disability than those that their impairment is just another way of being in the world. So that's just a, you know, the list could go on, but I just wanted to preface this by acknowledging that my lived experience doesn't give me a blank check to speak about this, but my posture towards you this morning is someone who's read a lot, thought a lot, talked with a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, have different lived experience, expertise, and I'd love to share with you some of the things that I've learned along the way. And you know what? One of the key things I've learned along the way, the more that I've looked into the Christian story, the story of the God that's held out in the Christian scriptures, the more that I sound out the person of Jesus, the more I've been convinced that the Christian faith offers us unparalleled resources to value all human life equally out of a coherent and consistent ethic. And that's a big call, and I stand by it. And I stand by it even though far too often churches do this stuff really poorly. Um, far too often... Christian communities are places where people with disability don't feel at home. They feel like they're a burden. They're an inconvenience. Uh, and that kind of exclusion is not at the heart of God. And I think that generally as Christians, when we're thinking about what tools we need to cultivate, one of the tools that we need to cultivate is distinguishing between Christians and how they act in the world and who Jesus is and what he says about who we are. There isn't always a perfect overlap, unfortunately. So with that like massive um, five-minute disclaimer, um, I'm going to step us through three handholds this morning. I think that these three handholds will help us to think more clearly about making sure that our churches are places that people with a disability can feel like they belong, and that's really important. So first, first handhold... Christianity says that to be human is more about embodied relationship than it is about rationality. 
And that's really important because it uniquely equips us with a coherent toolkit to value all human life equally. Second handhold, the Christian story is of a God who is at work in weakness. All throughout the Bible, and principally on the cross, we see that God redeems and works through weak things to display his redemptive power. And that flourishing comes not through strength, but through interdependency. That really transforms the way we think about community. And finally, the third handhold is that Christianity values diversity and difference as essential to healthy community. It says that every single person has something to contribute to our common life that we all desperately need. So, hope we're all ready. Let's buckle up and let's get stuck in. Handhold one, and this is, I, this is the one that's a little bit more philosophical, so bear with me. To be human is not about cognitive rationality. It's about embodied relationality. So what makes a human a human? What do you reckon? There are all sorts of assumptions about the answer to that question, which we kind of like tacitly absorb through our culture. The dominant one that's kind of has most currency at the moment in our Western life, and it has shaped most of Western policy and law, is something called expressive individualism. This just means a human being is an atomized, solitary will moving around in the world, and my body is just an instrument for that will to use and tame and to exercise. So it's an instrument to be used by my, the real me, which is the rational, autonomous will. And this way of seeing the world puts cognitive rationality at the top of the pile. So to flourish is therefore to have autonomy for that rational, autonomous will. So to be free, to do whatever it wants to do. Spoiler alert, I don't think that that's quite right. Largely, that's because I don't think that cognitive ability is the most true thing about what it is to be a human. So what does make a human a human? Well, a lot of smart people have thought about this across culture and time, back to like the Stoics and all those philosophers. And the dominant tide of thinking about that question tries to kind of like pin down a particular capability that you can say, that's what makes a human a human. That's what human personhood is all about. And basically, the kinds of capacities we're talking about that have been nominated by these people are things like rationality, self-awareness, your sense of self over time, ability to feel pain, that's what Singer says, reason, moral agency, those kinds of capabilities. So like, which of these constellation of things is the thing that makes us a human? And this whole venture is trying to do two things primarily. I find it helpful to think of it as like on a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. On the vertical axis, it's trying to account for what makes humans different 
from the non-human natural world? What makes us different from animals, such that we think that kicking a dog is morally different to kicking a human? That, that kind of thing, that instinct. What accounts for that instinct? And this is the stuff um, that a lot of philosophers have poured over, particularly in the animal rights space. Vertical axis, what makes us different from animals? Horizontal axis, how do we account for this instinct that we want to affirm that every human has the same moral worth? Doesn't matter where you are, when you were living, universal moral equality. That's stuff that sits behind a lot of our human rights instruments. What, what sits behind that? How can we say that we all have the same, are deserving of equal moral concern and respect? That's the kind of language used in the legal philosophy. So, vertical, horizontal. The idea is that the special dignity that most of us kind of implicitly bestow on other humans is something that we can pin on a particular host property. Um, that's something in the, in the human makeup that attracts that dignity and that worth. So it can't just be the lowest common denominator. It can't just be, you've got human DNA. The reason for that being, it has to carry an enormous conceptual load. Because remember, it's trying to account for us being different from animals and us all being equal. And so it can't just be some arbitrary, oh, we all have noses kind of thing. It needs to be something profound enough to carry that conceptual load. Easy, right? No, is the answer. Um, I was listening to these lectures um, by this um, Oxford-trained legal philosopher, and he spent basically like seven hours trying to hash this question out. And he gets to the end of it being like, I don't know, don't know what it is, right? Like pretty much is what he said. So if you're, if you're struggling this morning, you're in good company. The biggest problem though, and I want to draw your attention to this, the big, biggest problem that we run up when we're thinking about this, what makes a human a human, and we're looking at particular traits. So a lot of Christians, a lot of you know, Aquinas, um, Augustine, they would look at human rationality and say, that is the pinnacle, that is the thing that makes humans different from the non-human natural world. The biggest problem that we run up against what do we do with people who don't have that capability or don't have it to the same extent? If we say that what makes a human a human is the ability to think and reason rationally or to be self-aware, then what about those without a completely developed or normally functioning cerebral cortex? Newborn babies, those with congenital brain abnormalities, severe brain injury, dementia, major psychiatric in injury. Are they less human? They don't have the trait that we've said that that's what makes a human human. Now, there have been many attempts to try and deal with this problem. One approach is to say it doesn't actually matter if you actually exercise that capability as long as you have the potential for it. So you've got like a, say, say I've got an ear and the ear has the biological potential for hearing, so even if I don't have, I can't hear, I've got the ear, so I have the potential, biological potential for that. And similarly, some people say humans, by their virtue of being a 
human, that they have the biological potential for rationality, so therefore they're, they're in. Others talk about gradients within a range of capacity, so that you can have the same capacity but to different extents. Um, there's also the suggestion that our dignity attaches to the whole arc of our life, the narrative of our whole arc from prime to decline. So, you know, you're not self-aware at 90 because you've got dementia, but at 45 you did, so you get the tick. Um, still more suggest that we're not actually looking for a single capacity uh, because personhood is marked by complex clusters of these capacities that you can't pull them apart from each other. So you can't unpick rationality from moral agency because these clusters exist in network with each other. So you need all of them. So where does all this leave us? I don't think any of these quite get us where we want to be. I don't believe that we can say that the thing that makes a human being a human being at the most foundational level is whether we do or don't have the capacities of a rational will. There's a profound mystery in the face of another person, isn't there? The Christian worldview says Human personhood isn't defined by rational faculties, and it equips us with the reason why. It says that at the heart of it, the human person is all about the capacity for relationship. With other people, yes, but primarily with God. You've no doubt heard time and again that in those creation accounts set out in the Genesis scroll, humanity is described as being made in the image and likeness of God. So we bear the imprint of the divine, but what does that mean? I don't know if you've thought about that. I don't know if you've heard teaching in your churches about, about that. Some say, as I said before, that to bear the image of God is all about human rationality. And that's pretty much what I was taught growing up in the church that I grew up in in Sydney. Maybe you were as well. But as we've just explored there are real problems with anchoring what it means to be human in rational faculties. Because what does that mean for us if we suddenly become cognitively impaired or never had that capacity in the first place? Are we stripped of the image of God? I think, and I'm going to explore this more in one of my workshops, so feel free to come along to that. I think that it's more likely that to bear God's image means something like this. Just like kids bear the resemblance of their parents, humans bear the resemblance of God. God at his essence is not abstract force, but eternal self-giving love, relationship between Father, Son and Spirit, and that's why at our essence we too are relational. And so when we say that we bear God's image, we mean that we resemble him because we're in family relationship with him. And just like often a trade is passed from father to son, mother to daughter, from generation to generation, to bear God's image and likeness is kind of like saying we carry on the family business. It's to be God's representatives and agents in the world, entrusted to share in God's care for the earth's resources and creatures. It's to be a concrete, living, 
symbol that points the, to the existence and authority of God. And that's huge, to represent God in the world. It carries huge dignity and significance. And it's not just dignity that's for, you know, the powerful or the impressive among us. It's for every single human being, no matter your abilities. And it's a dignity that can't be taken away from you if you lose or never had certain abilities. Just as I will always be the daughter of Stephen and Annie, no matter what I do or what happens, so too the Bible says that every human is stamped with the family likeness of God. It remains intact no matter what. So as I've said, when we look at another human face, we behold a someone, not a something. And that someone, before we even met them, was already grasped in relationship by their divine maker. Someone to whom we must give the same kind of reverence and attention and respect, irrespective of their abilities. Because each and every person we meet is showing us something indispensable about who God is. They bear his image. They're disclosing something about their maker. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? People with a disability don't just deserve our care or pity, but our esteem and attention because these image bearers are revealing important truths about who God is, about who are, who we are. And one of those truths, there are many, is that dependence, not independence, is at the heart of our human condition, at its healthiest at least. Dependence is at the heart of what it is to be a healthy human. We are dependent and in need of God and one another, and this leads to our second handhold, which is that weakness and dependency aren't always bad things. This is handhold number two. So handhold number one, to be human isn't about rational cognition, it's about embodied relationality. Handhold number two, weakness isn't a bad thing. I think that control and independence often cut off connection. I don't know about you, but when we present a shiny exterior, we don't actually connect with one another. Whereas when we open up and confess our need, that actually is fertile ground for connection. When we reach the end of ourselves and our ability to control, when we reach that point where we have to acknowledge, I actually need help, that's the point that we reach out and connect with other people. And I think it's beautiful that our needs create this rhythm of connection. Certainly my physical constraints and limitations have led me to depend far more fully on people. I used to be fiercely independent, so I still kind of am. I used to resent having to ask for help. But now I just need it. I need it far more often. I need, you know, someone to give me a lift when my foot stops working or someone to help me carry my groceries. And, you know, there's a sense of... Um, shame often around those kinds of things and it's worth querying why is there shame what about our communities and our kind of default assumptions about what it is to be a healthy human it means that when we depend on one another we think it's shameful or humiliating when we're vulnerable to the people in our life i think we create opportunities for intimacy for self-disclosure and for understanding. And that's flourishing. So often, 
maybe this is true for you, I think this was my kind of default assumption, we view disability through the lens of tragedy and loss. I was talking to a, a guy called Eric Harvey recently, and he's a blind theologian. He only became blind in his 30s. Uh, and he was talking to me about how so often we think um, of disability as tragic. But he's like, well, actually, tragedy is about cut-off potential. And so often it is true that we think of disability as tragic. And that's because we think becoming disabled is to be diminished. But is that the case? If relationships are the most real thing that there is, the most meaningful thing in life, which I suspect is the case, then humans are made for a relationship more than we're made for autonomy and control. And therefore, anything that fosters deeper relationship isn't something to be resented. When it comes to disability and impairment, the things that make us vulnerable or weaker, the Bible says, look there, pay attention. Because all throughout the story of God, we see that God is at work in weakness. So that's our second handhold. Try not to despise weakness. And the, sec and the third handhold is that diversity is essential to thriving community and fullness of life. In this final section, I'm going to be gaming out what I think some of the implications of what we've just heard are for our church communities. So if we think people with disability aren't just bearers of the image of God, but they're also bearers of gifts of the Spirit for our mutual building up, what does that mean for our church communities? First thing, I think expect gifts from those that the world doesn't expect much of. In a world that values productivity, efficiency, economic contribution, the church ought to be a place where we expect unexpected gifts from those the world has kind of written off. A thread that runs through the Christian scriptures is that God chooses the weak and unimpressive things to do his most powerful work. Isn't that awesome? The most important moment in history wasn't a display of military strength or political power, but of weakness and apparent defeat when Jesus was nailed to that Roman cross. That was when God was doing his greatest work. And that's worth paying attention to, because if God is most at work in weakness, well, what does that mean for our communities? I think that for starters, it means that the greatest gifts will come from those who aren't impressive or shiny or eloquent or powerful. The greatest gifts will come from where we least expect it, from those who we think of as weak. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was saying in his first letter to the church in Corinth. You know when he talks about, as a community, we're like a body, and it's the parts of the body that seem weaker, that are indispensable. They're deserving of greater honour and esteem. Just think about that for a second in your own church community. Is that true of the way that we value the different people that show up on a Sunday or during the week? 
Each and every human has something to teach us about the God whose image they bear, and each and every member of our community has gifts to contribute, and we desperately need them if we're going to be the community that God has called us to be. So that's the first thing. Expect gifts. The second is mutuality. And this is one of the biggest mental shifts that needs to happen. I think that, you know, often we see people with disability as objects of pity or compassion. Instead, flip that script, adopt a mindset of mutuality. All those one another verses in the New Testament, love one another, honour one another, instruct one another, be compassionate to one another, all those verses. Do you think that sometimes we kind of carve out people with disability from one of, the, one of the, the directions of those instructions? I think I do. It's fine for me to serve Sarah, but I'm not really expecting her to serve me. It's also really present sometimes in the way we read our Bibles, I think. So we look at the healing narratives and I think we see the person with a disability simply as a narrative prop for the divine action of Jesus. Is that all there is at play in those narratives? It's worth thinking about. It's in the way that sometimes we conceptualise the disability programs we do, seeing it as a ministry to people with disability rather than ministry with and alongside. And that's something that one of my friends, Ben, pointed out to me. And he said that one of the most profound encounters he's had with God was facilitated um, by a young person who is nonverbal with a, with a cognitive impairment. So I'm conscious of the time. How much more time do I have? Five more minutes, okay. Heaps want to say. So many things to say. One of the things I think is important to bin is the idea that people with disability can't be a disciple of Jesus. Our identity is hidden in Christ, right? It doesn't depend on our ability or performance. So even when our memories may fail and we can no longer remember the creed, we don't actually know who Jesus is. This was true of my grandfather. He used to be the Archbishop of Sydney and he had dementia for the last 10 years of his life. Didn't know who I was, didn't know who he was, didn't know who God was. Was he still a Christian? Important question. Even when that happens, we can't remember any of that. We are still held securely in the memory of God. He still remembers us. There's this beautiful little line in the Old Testament that my friend John pointed out to me, and it's in the prophet Jeremiah. And he's talking about this guy, doesn't matter who, Shalom, doesn't matter. God says of him, He defended the cause of the poor and needy. Is that not what it means to know me? Is that not what it means to know me? Now, this is not not the full picture. I, I do believe in confessional Christianity, but it's worth thinking about. Knowing God and being known by God is much more expansive than I think we realize. So there are gifts on offer. And we should expect to receive them in mutuality. Third thing, mutuality. I want to quickly say, probably doesn't need to be said, disability isn't punishment from God. Or at least you can't assume that about a person. So often disability 
is morally freighted, um, and the people who bear the brunt of that are often the person with disability or their families. So you're kind of like trying to divine, like through tea leaves, like what's caused this thing. Just want to say that that's not what God says about disability in the scriptures, and we can go through that more later. One of the last things I want to say is that shifting our mindset from viewing disability through the lens of loss and instead turning to think of it as wonder. The scripture um, through the lens of wonder and play. So when we encounter something that we're not expecting in any kind of difference in our communities... Instead, treating them as something that can enrich our lives because they stop us in our tracks. We have to pay attention to the unexpected possibilities of the things that we can't master or manage or domesticate. My friend Brian, who I mentioned before, he says that encountering those with a disability can have this effect because it interrupts our certainties. It ruptures our assumptions about people and the world around us, about our control all these fixed narratives that we have. It's in that kind of moment that we can actually encounter God in different ways, and that is a real gift. So I've got a lot more to say, but what I'm going to land on is this. The goal of our communities isn't accessibility. It is not accessibility. It's belonging. Accessibility is kind of an infrastructure adjustment, having a ramp, having stuff for sight-impaired people to participate in worship. But just because a person with disability can show up physically in the room doesn't mean that they're going to feel welcome. For so many of us, as I said, the organising principles of our church services are things like efficiency. For that reason... Often we experience people with disability as a demand for resources. And that makes us panicky and awkward, and often people with disability notice. They can sense it. So something that we can all do is spending concerted time just getting to know the people in our community that have a disability. It's an invitation to be present, to slow down to God's time. God's time is slow time. He's at work in the places that we least expect him. The question is, are we paying attention? I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord God, um, thank you that you are at work in ways that we can't even imagine. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you are doing in us and in your people. We're sorry for the ways that we have ignored and shut our, shut our eyes and ears from the ways that you are at work, and we ask for your help as we try to be the church that you've called us to be. We pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.